Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about the inflation data we got this week and what that did to mortgage rates. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here, and I hope we'll put on a wonderful show for everybody because what happened on Thursday was pretty wild. We, it really was. We we're going to get to that. So um, wanted to mention, if you are just hearing this on audio, we are doing this live on Circle. So we are recording this on Friday and then the audio portion goes live on Monday. But once a month, we do this um, really fun thing. So you can see Logan. If you saw him right now, you would say, Logan, you have Pat Riley hair today. What is up with that? <laughs> yeah, you know, my hair has grown so much that, you know, it's allowed me to do the Pat Riley and I'm, I'm a SoCal guy, so I got to pay respects to one of the best coaches ever <laughs> doing the Pat Riley thing. It totally works. It works. Okay, let's get to it. You you said before we started the podcast, it's one of the most the busiest 24 hours of your life because what we saw is we had CPI, we had inflation data come in soft, and that what did that do to mortgage rates? So catch us up. So that was like a historical event, and for, I think for people to understand what happened is that the marketplace was not prepared for a softer CPI data. Um, the kind of the, the bearish bet was that uh, CPI will come in hotter than anticipated and you know possibly uh, CPI inflation being up 8.2% to 8.4%. The estimates were about 7.9%. So everyone's bearish bet was for stocks to fall and bond rally to not happen, the reverse. People selling off bonds, the Fed will get more aggressive, the US recession will Typically, the most bearish people in America were, were set up for this trade. And then it came in lighter than expected. So like what all market participants do, they get out of their trades as soon as possible. And that's why we saw such a violent reaction, which I, I don't consider healthy. Like this shows how unhealthy the, the, the market is, how mortgage mortgage pricing going down 60 basis points in one day is not, not normal. Um, but it could show that, you know, if inflation, the growth rate cools down, more it's going to happen next year. And I think that's all, all my work with, with rent inflation is that it'll be a 2023 story. Shelter inflation drives CPI, right? We had a very steady, the 21st century before COVID even came, uh, the growth rate of inflation was very stable. Shelter inflation was very stable. But we have this unbelievable event where in, I think the best way for me to explain it is in the summer of 2020, when I talked about cities aren't dying, Right, rent inflation is 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 about to kick up so much to the point that you know even giving a quote to the Washington Post saying, "Hey, listen, core inflation is going to get to two percent faster and stay above just because shelter drive shelter inflation drives this," and it lagged back in the summer of 2020, and I just have the reverse mindset now. It's lagging now, you know, uh, uh, and it, over time the growth rate of inflation for shelter, which drives CPI inflation will start to fall, right? And people are starting to get ready for that next move. 
Um, now, rental vacancies historically are low, but they're rising. We have 910,000 two-unit constructions that are being built that are going to come online next year. The growth rate of inflation itself simply can't be sustained, that year-over-year type of inflation data. If you look at it, this has been a, a historic event in U.S. economic history. Uh, the people that were always talking about housing deflation from 2012 to 2019 missed the biggest story because what happened rental vacancies have been falling for years just like homeowner inventory has been falling for years we just got caught in a very bad spot and what happens too many people chasing too few homes and you have this unbelievable parabolic rise in both home prices and shelter inflation where if you actually looked in in previous uh decades we didn't have this kind of dynamic here uh but it will fade and when it fades the growth rate of inflation should cool down and whatever, however the market wants to interpret that, that is starting to become the reality uh, uh, unless there's any more supply shocks around the world or anything. But the energy situation and the food situation is different. The housing situation is more set uh, and stowed. And that's such a big driver of uh, CPI inflation. So still a 2023 story, but uh, we saw what happens with one little miss on inflation data, how, uh, how, the market was not prepared for something like that. Well, and I agree with you that a 60 basis point drop in a day is not healthy, but it was welcome news for the mortgage industry. It's like, thank God something's happening with mortgage rates. That's not, they're now in the eights. I mean, the fact that it went to the sixes and it gave people hope that like, hey, Powell can look at this and this is one more thing for him to say, you know, we're seeing it cool off. I don't have to keep raising rates. I mean, I think that's the takeaway if I'm in the mortgage industry. Here's the thing with the Federal Reserve, okay? And it's been a big part of my work during this last few months. The Federal Reserve truly believes if they can create a job loss recession, wage growth will come down and inflation will fall. So this is why they're hiking rates. But they've also always talked about, you know, they look at these three-month, six-month, 12-month PCE inflation and four and a half, five percent is kind of where they want to go, kind of where they've always said, we just want to get here and just... Let it stick and then see what happens. And if the if there's a recession, we'll cut rates again. But we're getting toward the end of this. And I think what happens toward the end of every kind of uh, economic event, there's always people that will push toward more, right? Um, you know, when stock markets, when they're near the bottoms, you see a lot of people so bearish, right? We always talk that uh, that, that indicator that, you know, you the most bullish time is always when people are most spare. So you started to have people talking about, well, we need six percent Fed funds rate, seven percent Fed funds rate. To, to, to we need it, we need a massive job loss recession. So, um, as always, I've always said, the battle between rates is the battle between the U.S. economy and uh, the Federal Reserve. And if the economy stays firm, it gives the Fed more time to keep raising rates until they feel more comfortable. And I've always said the people that are talking about eight to ten percent mortgage rates have to be very pro bullish on the U.S. economy because when a job loss recession happens, uh, the narrative will change. So you can't be an eight to ten percent mortgage rate person uh, and then say, "Well, we'll lose millions of jobs, but the Fed won't care." It's a viable premise and something we saw in 1975, but 
Not so much here, right? The Fed, the I don't believe the Fed members when they say we'll hike rates when they're recession. You know, no, these people will fold. They're all folders. You can see them in their body language and the statements they make. They're talking really tough right now because the labor market is tough. So uh, that's the dynamic we're dealing with. So we just got a little bit of taste of one missed report, and uh, it was historic. The stock market rallied, and the bond market rallied. So. Uh, it, it, this is an anomaly, right? This is not something that's that's normal, but it just shows how the trade was all to one side here. So I know that you look at, for your uh, sixth recession red flag model, which has been up since uh, August? August 5th, yes. August 5th. So you have, uh, when you look at your sixth recession red flags, the factors that you're looking at, one of them, obviously jobs. One of them is consumer, uh, consumer, the, the CPI and the inflation data. So tell me how the CPI data plays into the job data, because I know we have not seen the job softening at all. So how do those two things play together? Here's, here's the thing. The six recession red flag model was created to show like a progression model of economic expansions to recessions. It's not designed to be kind of the rah, rah, we're going to crash. We're, I, it was designed to go against people like that. The internet is all professional troll artists, grifters, all this. It is here to show you what has happened through every economic expansion post 1960 to every single recession. Now we have actually data to show that the number one Fed starts its rate hike. Number two, the unemployment rates gets to a certain percentage. This is called an economic expansion maturing, right? 4.2% was mine. The inverted yield curve, the 210 inversion, right? Since Thanksgiving of last year, I've been on inverted yield curve watch. We got that checked. But the last three are the more important ones to get to the final stage, right? Where's the overinvestment? Where was the booming? Durable goods spending, right? Retail sales went crazy, right? The Peloton effect, too much uh, uh, demand short term, can't sustain it have to lay off people, uh, too much uh, overinvestment, too much capacity. That's how recession works. So that's checked off. Number four was we typically housing goes into a recession before every single general recession, right? Housing gets weaker. Uh, for the most part, that occurs. We The housing market went into recession in June of this year. Checks. So number six and the final one is leading economic index, right? Leading economic index, set of 10 data lines, uh, the Economic Council or the Conference Committee actually had me come and speak in, in front of them to show them my six recession red flag model because I'm using one of their data lines. And one of the things we, we, we talked about before is that the dollar gets stronger typically before the first red rate hike. The U.S. has this unbelievable capacity of being like the only real economic superpower in the world. So the dollar has the potential to get so strong and that can create chaos and that's what we're seeing, you know, in the last few months, where uh, dollar gets too strong. Foreign countries have to sell their treasuries; they have to raise up cash, so the bond market starts to get uh, uh, escalated out. The dollar is no longer going up. This is key for anybody in the mortgage industry. The dollar not getting stronger is beneficial, right? The ten-year yield has now tried twice to break above uh, four and a quarter; hasn't been able. So, a weaker dollar, weaker inflationary data can just bring yields down on itself. Now, the spread is very wide, right? You know, I talked about how do you get 5% mortgage rates, right? 5%. We actually saw some stabilization in housing back at 5%. If the spreads just come down a little and you get a little bit of a, a, a lower growth rate of inflation, we can get to 5% next year. Wouldn't it be actually that difficult? So, uh, but now that we're at this stage, all six recession red flags up, the last time that happened for me was 2006. Right before COVID, only three of my recession red flags up. Housing authentically broke out 
you know, in February of 2020. So there were all the economic data was still expanding. So that that uh, we had no recession going on in that environment. But 2006 was the last time I had all six recession red flags up. The difference now is that the U.S. consumer is in much better shape, right? If people read the consumer balance sheet date correctly, they could see that from 2000 to 2008, we had massive rises in foreclosures and bankruptcies, uh, all before the job loss recession uh, uh, happened. Here's the other case. Household balance sheets look good. Why? 2005 bankruptcy law reforms uh, and the 2010 QM mortgage funneled the best home uh, owner profile, but why we always talk about homeowners because they own the majority of consumer debt. So that's still going. So the final last stage is jobs, right? Jobless claims, job openings, right? And what did we do when we write the America's Back Recovery Model on April 7th, 2020? We retired it in December of tw- uh, 9th of 2020. The next stage was the labor market. And we said, we are not going to get all the jobs back lost to COVID until September of 2022. But we're going to get 10 million job openings, right? Uh, the, the the demographics of this country is much different now than we saw in 2008. So baby boomers leave the workforce. They need to be replaced. So if your economy is growing, there's parts of the U.S. that need more labor. So that's why you're having a very low unemployment rate. Until jobless claims breaks, right, I wouldn't think the Fed is going to pivot. So when we talk about jobless claims, historically, they're still very low. Uh, 323,000 four-week moving average. When that happens, I believe the Fed pivots then because they're using this. They're telling you, we need more pain. We need a higher unemployment rate. Their own forecasts even talk about a 4.4% unemployment rate next year. That means the job loss recession here. So they're talking as tough as they can to get the markets to be tight enough to get inflation down because more pain means less inflation, okay? That's, that's their mindset out here. So we go with the labor market data at this state. All six recession red flags are up already. Jobless claims are where it's at. And what happens with higher interest rates, the banks make more money. Your credit card interest payments goes up. So the net interest expenses of households goes up, which they're hoping that you will consume less, right? And then that will create more supply. And then people lose their jobs. And this is how they will get their mandate uh, fixed. Whatever you think about it, that's what they're doing right here. So we follow the jobless claims data more than ever now. So that's my question. So that this CPI data, can we see in the CPI data as if consumers are spending less money, then that means that the next thing is job lot? Like, are those two things correlated together? You can see that. The- no, I mean, here's here's the dynamics. We, we never had an inflationary problem with CPI PC until the global pandemic hit. So some of the excess savings that the Fed talks about, a lot of people, and this is a good thing for for the viewers, you're going to see people on the internet use the savings rate percentage and they say, oh, it's below COVID. Everyone's broke. No, the excess savings are still 1.5 to 1.7 trillion, right? The Fed wants people to spend that down, right? So they consume less, right? Retail sales on a nominal basis are still very positive, uh, especially year over year. On adjusted to inflation basis, it's not done much at all for some time. So they want people to spend less. So the supply increases. So the companies start charging less and that'll bring inflation down on that. Traditionally, a stronger dollar destroys oil prices, but the Russian invasion screwed up a lot of things. Uh, Wheat prices that went parabolic almost after the Russian invasions are coming down. So there's some things the Fed has literally no control over at this point. But the consumption of goods and services, they want 
higher interest rates so you can spend less. And they say the household balance sheets, right? Household debt payments as a percentage of uh, disposable income are still near all-time lows for mortgages, still near all-time lows. So they think the consumer is still too strong and they're not going to get the growth rate of inflation to fall down fast enough. So this explains why they talk really tough. But what happened uh, on Thursday was just everyone was paired up for one trade, a higher inflation data. They were short the stock market. They were short the bond market, and it just it just went it just went across on them. So kind of take that day with a grain of salt, but just know that over time, rent inflation should cool down. So you wrote you wrote a story on Thursday about this, and the article is called "Mortgage Rates Collapse on Softer Inflation Data." And one of the things you say is that it's possible that rates could could still far fall further than that, right? So we saw them go to six point. Seven two six. We rates went from seven point three seven five to six point six zero on the second pricing uh, turn. So, uh, if this spreads, you know that uh, the the ten year yield and thirty year mortgage spreads gets better. I mean, mortgage rates in itself, if the spreads got better, could fall one percent on its own. You have, everyone has to realize all the Federal Reserve, if it really wants to help housing, just all they have to do is say one thing: we're going to get back in the mortgage backed security market. That takes one to one and a half percent. The ten-year yield doesn't even need to move that much, really. So we we you know usually it's between one sixty to one eighty historically the spread between the ten-year yield and thirty-year fix. Now it got up to you know we got we got up to three percent. So we we can get mortgage rates to just go all by itself lower without the bond market because the spread is so wide. So there's a potential here, but again, the housing reset, right? The Federal Reserve specifically said, right? And this is what Chairman Powell said. They hated the multiple bids, right? They hated the fact that, you know, there was contingencies being taken off, right? Home sellers, right? And nobody believes they're greedy with the market, with their own house, but everyone got really greedy and everyone forced bid and everyone tried to make the most money. Why? Because we're human beings. That's what we do, right? So when an entire marketplace has it, it was chaos, right? The whole savagely unhealthy housing market theme of mine. It started at the end of summer of 2020, right? I was like, oh boy, inventory levels broke to all-time lows. That's not a good thing at this stage of our housing cycle. Well, guess what? In October of 2021, they still were breaking to all-time lows, right? The inventory channels work in certain ways. So 2022, January, percentage of home uh, biddings rose. February, it got even worse. So my price growth model broke at the end of 2021. So February, I said, that's it. We need higher rates to shut this down, or this thing's we're gonna have another 20 to 25% home price growth a year. Um, rates then started to rise after the end of March, really. So uh January, February, March, the acceleration of bidding wars actually took place. That's when the Fed said reset, right? Because they were seeing this. They were saying too many bidding wars, too many contingencies being taken off of purchases, savagely unhealthy housing market. When I talked about it in February. They said it housing reset in March. So I understand that mindset of theirs. But also they realized the real estate economy itself is a very big, important factor uh, of the U.S. So they're just trying to buy enough time with the labor market to get things cool enough. Right. The bidding wars. Uh, I mean, home prices are going to end up uh, up nationally this year just because the price growth was so strong. The higher mortgage rates impact came toward the second half. But they want this to occur because they did not see what happened at the end of 2020, 2021, and the start of 2022 to be a viable long-term option for the U.S. economy. So they're going to press this as much as they can. But 
when the labor market turns, when jobless claims break, that narrative of theirs, their main talking points kind of goes away. So I think that's another layer where the bond market could go down. If they really wanted to help the housing market, you, I mean, you can get to 5% mortgage rates if all those variables work together. So the labor market is one. The real estate economy is in a recession since June. We're not even 12 months into there. So they're keeping an eye on this. You know, I've listened to some of the Fed members. So they're mindful of it. There's going to be a time when they pull the trigger. It's just not yet. But you could see, wow, one little just taste of blood for a vampire who hasn't drank in so long. Oh, my God, here we go. You know, so uh, that's just the marketplace we're in. We just have to look at job openings, right? Paper, rock, scissors, jolts over 10 million. Yeah, take jobless claims versus jolts right now. That's the more important data line because every single recessionary data after the six flags are up, when claims break, it's over, right? Because they break hard. Uh, so that's that's the focus for me. I think that should be the focus of everyone right now. So when is the next jobs report and what do you think it's going to tell us? So the jobs, jobless claims data comes out every Thursday. Right, Thursday morning, 5.30 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, the jobs reports are still, as long as claims are still low, uh, the jobs, we're still gaining jobs, right? That's not a problem. Job openings went up this last month. Uh, so there's still, the labor market is still needing employment. So think about in this, even though we got all the jobs back that we lost to COVID in September or by, uh, by this year, that's just getting those jobs back. If the economy was growing, we still needed more labor, right? So think of it in that way. We just got the jobs back we lost. So there's still more leg room for the employment, for the expanding economy, right? And so people go, well, GDP was negative. GDP was negative inventory channels, export data that moved the data lines, right? The internal industrial production was positive. Consumption was still positive. You don't have a recession until these four things traditionally happen. Um, demand goes down. Production goes down, jobs go down, incomes go down. That's been the cornerstone of every recession post-World War II. That's happening in housing, not the general U.S. economy yet. So the labor market is still good, but when claims start to break, you'll see it in the jobs data that comes out at the end of each month on Friday. So jobless claims every Thursday are the key data lines at this point. Even with job openings being above 10 million, which is historic in that nature, go with the claims data. Okay, so that that was one of my questions because I know it comes out every Thursday, but I know Jobs Friday is is a is a different look there. So you know you've called this the honey badger labor market because it just will not quit. I mean, even when we want it to quit a little bit, so we can we the Fed can say, oh yes, okay, the pain is we've dealt the pain now we can we can pull back. It's just not doing it. So then this goes to the uh, things that we we wrote last year. Uh, we were the only people on planet Earth that was writing job openings 10 million. Not even the people that ran the job openings would believe me. Okay, so there's a reason. We are getting older as a country. Productivity is terrible here in America, right? Robots never took all the jobs. Uh, immigrants didn't take all the jobs. And people are dying and aging. So they need to be replaced. So when the job openings were historically rising, in a, in a country that has population growth falling. And by the way, all you people that say, well, we need more babies. Your baby is not going to work at Target at one years old, okay? <laughs> we have child labor laws. That's not going to solve this issue right now, right? So there's parts of the United States of America that don't have a lot of prime age labor force growth. So when they're elderly workforce, I talk about Wichita, Kansas was one of those, you know? Um, you need people to replace those workers and in a growing economy, you need more labor. So job openings are above 10 million. 
But there becomes a point to where you hiring freeze, you don't need to, you don't need any more. The productivity data is so terrible, and that means that people aren't being as productive as they should be, so they need more labor. That's why the productivity data is is bad. We want people to be more productive. I'd say that so many people have quit so many jobs or going into new areas that it, be, it takes a little bit of time to get more productive in that in that in that field. But we just need more people to fill in these things. But if the demand gets hit, even with higher job openings, like we had seven. 7 million job openings in 2018. The Fed pivoted back then. This is why I like to talk about 2018 data a lot. So the Fed pivoted even with over 7 million job openings, right? So there you don't 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 go 100% on job openings at this stage. Go with the jobless claims data. And then when it turns, boy, jobless claims will break up higher. Jobs will be lost everywhere. Service sector jobs are where most of the jobs are at. And of course, the, the people with the least amount of education, those who never finished high school, will always have the highest unemployment rate. Their unemployment rate went from 5.6% to 6.2% in the last jobs report. So there are things that we can track at this stage that are more important than the job openings data. And there are two things. You know, we know that housing is already in a recession. You laid out the four things that have to happen before, you know, a larger economic recession, and like in the whole economy. There are two things that you're like, are, you know, when people ask, is there any way that we could forestall the larger recession? And you're like, there are two ways to do that. But one, one of them yeah, seems two, extremely un- unlikely. So t- tell me what those two yeah. ways are. So because of the bullwhip effect of COVID, right? Again, it, it, we, we're dealing with a globalized economy that had to deal with a global pandemic that has the U.S. really the only real economic superpower out there. So our consumption goods actually really matter. Um, there's inflation in other countries that have nothing to do with our stimulus checks <laughs> given out a long time ago. Uh, we are in a commodities war out there. So energy inflation will stay high for some areas. But for here in the US, how do you stop a recession when, when a model of mine has always said it's occurred 100% of the time? Well, number one, uh, rates have to come down, right? Rates getting back to 5% won't bring back the housing market we had you know, before, but it will stabilize it. So you have to stop the bleeding first. We saw buyers come into the market between 5% or 5-10%, especially for the builders. The home builders really unloaded that property. That's why we had that big new home sales beat, 28% month to month on that thing. 5% stabilizes. You got to stabilize the housing sector first. Uh, so it can actually stop shedding jobs. But re- the reality is that if you really wanted to prevent a recession at this point, the Fed has to stop its rate hikes and start cutting like it did in 2018. Like it, we did that in 2018, even with 7 million job openings back then, the Fed said, okay, we did too much, two and a quarter, whatever it was back then. And then they started cutting rates uh, at that point. Now, back then we had the Trade war tapped ads, private private investment by companies went zero because nobody knew what the trade war was going to happen. So everyone kind of stalled on a few things. Rates went higher. Here, you already have the housing market in a real re- uh, recession, and you have other data lines getting much weaker around the world. So the Fed has to stop and reverse, you know, and bond yields have to go down, and the growth rate of inflation has to come down. That's how you prevent a recession at this point. It's never happened on my model. Right, but I'm giving at least a a a, a variable or something that you can hang your hats on 
if they want to do that at this stage. But traditionally speaking, when leading economic indicators are down six months in a row, when all the other recession red flags, well, a recession has always occurred. The timing is different. You know, it happened in 2000, late 2006. We didn't get the recession until 2008. Other times it's been much uh, sooner. So we are in a different stage of the market. And I say this, the previous expansion, the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history, the six recession red flags were never up, right? If it wasn't for COVID, we'd still be in the longest economic and job expansion in history. It's different now with the different variables that we're dealing with. And again, we're dealing with the bullwhip effect of a global pandemic, uh, so things are just not working uh, as normally yet, but we are seeing supply start to increase in certain areas. The used car prices are starting to fall. The new car prices are starting to fall. The freight costs from Shanghai to uh, uh, Los Angeles were almost back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, the growth rate of rent inflation in those earlier data lines, the faster ones that pick it up, was already falling. So there are we are in a different spot right now today than we were in November of 2021. So tell me uh, next rate hike, what's it going to look like? Uh, I would guess that uh, 50 basis points right now. Um, uh, the inflationary data is okay enough for them. Inflation expectations did rise a little bit. Uh, uh, so, so they're keeping an eye on that. But I believe the Fed really wants to slow things down and just see what happens, right? Because last year, they weren't in this position, right? Last year, we had the growth rate of inflation picking up. Here, it's much different. They see what all of us data miners see. Things are slowing down. The economy is weakening, right? So they can't just put their head down and go, okay, 75, 79, 75, right? Uh, um, but they can still talk tough while the labor market is good. And they use a consumer. I mean, I, a really good example, when uh, Chairman Powell was speaking, uh, uh, at the Fed presser, you know, the Fortune magazine writer was like, hey, he sounds exactly like Logan Moshali, like word by word. He literally took word by word what I wrote in the article and said, hey, consumer balance sheets are great. No, no, no. Labor dynamics are different. Oh, we don't have enough uh, labor coming in, immigration. So these things matter, but they eventually have all broken in history. So uh, 50, I would say, right now, um, and they they're really want this thing to slow itself down until they get to four and a half and five percent. And then they're going to go, OK, let's see what happens. And when the labor market breaks, they go, OK, we might have hiked too much. Then they can start cutting and then the bond market could come down and just getting to five percent will stabilize. Don't think of housing booms, like stabilization. We could start to heal some of the weaknesses in the economy then. 2023 is going to be uh, hopefully a better year in some ways for housing than 2022, although it looks like it's not going to be anytime soon. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting housing market. Like if you went into a coma in 2019 and you woke up right now and you looked at the total inventory data in housing, monthly supply at 3.2 months, total housing inventory, 1.25 million. Remember, historically, going back four decades Two to two and a half million active listings is normal NAR data. We're at 1.25. So in your mind, you think, oh, housing must be booming. You can't look at it that way. This is why affordability index models are really key for any data analyst. So you could show an inflection point. We've showed our inflection point since 2020. Everything broke uh, uh, at the end of last year. But here, household balance sheets look great. Right? Remember the whole forbearance crash, bros? All those professional grifters, eh, everyone's going to foreclose. No, distress sales are very low. Delinquencies are very low. Uh, the housing crash, the credit crash, the housing market was deteriorating in 2005, 6, 7, and 8. Then the job loss recession happens. 
Their credit profiles look great now. The affordability hit is legitimately real. This is the biggest affordability hit we've ever seen in recent modern day history. That is not a problem that can be solved if rates stay high, right? Because total prices aren't falling in any meaningful way to change that equilibrium yet, right? Home prices are going to be up in 2022. So the only thing that changes the dynamics is rates, right? You're not going to get 2.5% mortgage rates anytime soon. You're not going to get three, three and a quarter. But if you just get to the five level and stick, stay there, not be there for like six days and then have things shoot up, then you can have a stabilized market. Like a perfect thing for housing would have been if mortgage rates slowly moved up and then like stayed between 5.18 to 5.875, you would have slowed the market down, but you wouldn't have had the new listings data decline. I think that's that's that still needs more attention. When rates got to six and a quarter percent, new listings data done, right? It's been negative 18 weeks in a row. Home sellers are like, uh-uh, I'm not buying a new house at 7% or whatever. That's not a good thing, right? The whole mortgage rate lockdown. Mortgage rate lockdown, never believed in it, not once, right? Because we need these variables to come into play first before that happens. Number one, mortgage rates have to break to all-time lows. Okay, check. Number two, rates have to go up uh, higher than historical norms, not one to one and a half percent like we saw in the previous expansion. And you're talking about two to four percent, check, five percent swing from the lows of... uh, uh, yeah, historically event. Okay, so that's two. And then rates have to stay up high, rising home prices, check. We had all three of these things happen this year. So sellers are like, man, I, I'm doing really good here. What am I doing? You know, so don't think of it as just like a pure rate lockdown. Look at it as the total cost of housing for a lot of households are really low. Like you buy a house, you have a fixed payment, your wages rise every year. We've had three refinancing waves. So they're looking really good on paper and they're like, wow, I'm great. Why, why would I ruin my cash flow this way? So that's why we saw the new listings data decline so uh, uh, so fast and so uh, earlier. But remember, a traditional seller, 75 to 82% of the time is a buyer of a home. So you want new listings data to grow because it gives you not only an, an, an extra inventory, it gives you an extra buyer as well. So the housing market is just savagely unhealthy. Okay, so just going to find a way to work ourselves back to something normal. Logan, thank you so much for being on today. I hope our circle, uh, the viewers who came on for the live thing, they could see all your hand gestures. They can see the hair. They can uh, see all the things that doesn't come through when, when you're just listening to audio. But either way, thank you so much for uh, walking us through this. And we'll have you on in a couple more days. Thank you, Sarah. It's wonderful to be here. Always great to have you. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW Plus, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more.
Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.